Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and following. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in that little rack on the pew in front of you. Uh, You can find our text this morning on page 853. 853, Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. This is God's Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We stopped at verse 8, and I want to explain why I stopped reading at verse 8 this morning and why our series... Uh, in the gospel according to Mark, concludes uh, with this verse. When Mark uh, sat down to to write his gospel, or any other New Testament author for that matter, John or Paul, um, they they produced a document that they then delivered uh, to a church or circulated uh, throughout a group of churches. And that original document that they penned with their own hand or that a scribe sitting next to them in the same room penned with his own hand, that document is what we call an autograph. Just think of signing your name. It's an autograph. It's what they actually wrote. That manuscript, that autograph, contained the inspired words of God, what God breathed out, what God intended for his people. As it was circulated to other cities, as Mark sent this out, as John and Paul sent uh, their letters out, copies were made. And then copies of those copies were sent and distributed to other cities so that um, people everywhere across the world could uh, hear and read and celebrate all that God had done in Jesus. Now, the thing is, we don't have in our possession, uh, anywhere, any of the autographs, those original documents that Mark may have sat and scribbled with his own hand, any autographs of the New Testament documents. What we have are copies. That's how we have our Bible sitting in front of us. We've looked at the copies and we've said, this is the biblical text. And as would happen, if you were to copy anything of some length, as copies were made, um, words were misspelled. Uh, words were left out or sometimes written twice, right? You ever ended a one line with a the and then the next line with a the? 
right? That happens. Um, and the differences in these manuscripts, so one copy is made and, and uh, maybe a scribe makes an error, repeats a word, misspells a word, the differences in these manuscripts are called textual variants. And, and this might seem troubling to some of us, though I want to let you know this really shouldn't concern us, nor should it in any way weaken our faith or cause us to doubt God's word, because we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, uh, some fragments now dating from the first century, within decades of when these documents were penned, when the autographs actually were sent out. In fact, we should have greater certainty because of these thousands of copies that we can compare, that what we are reading this morning is in fact what God intended for us to hear and to believe. Uh, there's a, a literary science called textual criticism. Uh, what it is is it, it compares manuscripts, these copies, um, and it allows us to ter- determine what are the best manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts. And interestingly enough, textual criticism tells us that verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16 here are original to Mark. The the two oldest and most important manuscripts of the Bible, of the the Greek New Testament, are are two, uh, Codex Vaticanus and uh, Codex Sinaiticus. Both of those manuscripts do not include verse 20. Two of the greatest of ancient biblical scholars, a man by the name of Jerome, who worked in the West, and a man by the name of Eusebius who worked in the East, acknowledged that they knew about verses 9 through 20, but it wasn't in most of the manuscripts that they were working with as they produced translations of the Bible for the people of God. So, uh, biblical scholars then and now acknowledge that verses 9 through 20 were not what Mark wrote originally. And in a few moments, we'll discover why somebody came along and decided, uh, I think we need to include these thoughts to the end of Mark's gospel. But I I wanted you to know initially why we are reading and stopping with verse 8, because this is where we believe Mark stopped. This is where we are sure God has spoken, and we will stop there and go no further. If you have any other questions about this, I know this may be uh, unsettling to some of you. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Uh, again, not an issue for concern. I encourage you to, to look this up on your own as well, uh, and, and glad to talk about it. Uh, but let's pray as we look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would now work in our midst, because we know that the enemy has blinded some, lest they see the glory of the gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, of his resurrection power, of the empty tomb. And so, God, I pray that you would give light, that you would give life to some, and that you would strengthen and encourage your people to be lights in this world through what we read and hear from you. May the words of my mouth 
And may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Companies race to find the key to eternal life. That was a headline I read this week on a news site that I often frequent. Companies race to find the key to eternal life. It was a link at the bottom to another article. You know how they group similar articles uh, from years ago called Seeking Eternal Life. And that article starts with these thoughts. For years now, the luminaries of Silicon Valley have been putting their minds, money, and machines behind an all-out effort to solve for death. One of the guys who donates hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, yes, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year for life extension therapies said, I don't understand how someone can be here then not be here. You've heard of PayPal? We've all, most of us have heard of PayPal. The co-founder, Peter Thiel, said, I've always had this really strong sense that death was a terrible, terrible thing. And that was reflecting on the millions of dollars he's donated to anti-aging research. In 2013, I don't know how many of you know this, Google launched a billion-dollar secret effort called Calico to cure aging, to cure aging. And when asked why, when asked about the, the rationale for this, the founder said that seeing his father die of a brain tumor changed him. He said, my thoughts can tur- turn to dark things when I'm alone. And then the author of the article editor, editor, uh, puts in an editorial comment at this point and says, he, like so many, feared the end that awaits us all. Right? What these people are revealing is that death is scary. It brings despair. It makes us uh, feel hopeless, hopeless and pathetic. It, it leaves dreams and hopes unfulfilled. Many of us fear death. Few of us, uh, if any, long for death. And that's why these people that I've just read from this article are going to great lengths to try at any cost to prevent it, to reverse it. And that's why our passage, Mark 16, may seem so shocking to some of us. Last week, we looked at Mark 15, which included the brutal uh, uh, beatings and, and, and the the eventual eventual crucifixion and death of Jesus along with his burial in the closing verses. Yet this week, we read what these entrepreneurs and what scientists who are involved in cryogenics in our day, some of whom we think are absolutely eccentric, this week we read of what they long for, resurrection, eternal life. Now, what I want you to see in this passage is that 
Mark doesn't report this resurrection, this empty tomb, to his readers because, well, he and he believes his readers expect the resurrection. You know, like, they're just gullible, stupid, ancient people that don't know any better. But come on, guys, that's not why he's reported this. The woman that we find in our text, Marys, the Marys and Salome, they don't find an empty tomb because they went looking for an empty tomb. They didn't expect it, and they wouldn't have expected it under any circumstances. In fact, such a thing could not be imagined by faithful Jews in Jesus' day. It, it, couldn't, it would have blown their mind. To, it would have just been silly to think of such a thing. There was no category of thought for the resurrection of a man. Now, the Old Testament does teach a bodily resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But this passage comes at the end of Daniel, and it's talking about the end of all things, not the the middle of history, the end of all things. And what it's referring to is not one man being resurrected, but everybody coming to life. One noted biblical scholar writes about the Jewish expectation for resurrection in this way. He said this, When Yahweh, the Lord, restores the fortunes of his people, then of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, together with all God's people, down to and including the martyrs who had died in the cause, would be re-embodied, raised to new life in God's new world. If, therefore, at any time in this period you had said to a Jew, the resurrection has occurred, you would have received the puzzle or irritated response that it obviously had not since the patriarchs, the prophets, the martyrs were not walking around alive again. And since the restoration spoken of in Ezekiel 37 clearly had not occurred either. They just didn't expect it. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was shocking news that confronted the worldview of these women who had witnessed Jesus' burial just hours earlier. Consider the details of our passage. Verse 1 tells us this. When the Sabbath, Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Let's make sure we understand the the timeline here and the importance of that. Sabbath was sundown around 6 p.m. Friday evening till sundown Saturday about 6 p.m. Saturday evening. So what Mark tells us in verse 1 is that these women rush out sometime after 6 p.m. on Saturday to go buy perfume spices so that they can put them all over the corpse of Jesus. This was a customary practice for uh, family members, for for people you cherished. You would go, and as a a sign of affection, you would anoint their body with these uh, good-smelling, supposedly, good-smelling spices. But it also had the very pragmatic effect 
of offsetting just horrible odors from decaying flesh. So, dial into what Mark's saying here. These women do a late run to the local market Saturday night because they are going to go very early next morning and they fully believe and couldn't have considered otherwise that the body of Jesus in the tomb was beginning to rot and decay. And so they're going to anoint it as they would any other family member. They did not expect a resurrection in any way. The second detail that shows us they were not expecting a resurrection is the fact that as they were heading to the tomb at the crack of dawn, suddenly the thought hits them. We see expressed in verse 3. Look at it with me. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They hadn't thought through this situation very well. They were not from the Levi Pancake School of Planning here. They, like, they did not think like even one step ahead. But do you see what they're, you see what they're talking about and like the, what, what thought pops to their head? Like, how are we going to get to the body? Jesus' body is inside the tomb. We're outside the tomb. There's a really big stone that we can't move separating us. So in their minds, the body of Jesus is in there. They have no inkling or hope that that Jesus will be in any other state than rigor mortis. That may sound crass, but that's what they think. Because there hasn't been this great resurrection of generations and generations and generations and generations of people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not walking around in Jerusalem there. There hasn't been a resurrection. They can't possibly imagine it. So the resurrection confronted and challenged the worldview of what they thought was even possible. And I don't think it's all that different for many of us. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, quite frankly, is shocking news that confronts our worldview. Right? Like we think highly of Jesus. We, we, we revere his teaching. We love his compassion. But, but perhaps we just think it's a little far-fetched. Maybe, maybe it's, it's childish, just rather ignorant to believe that Jesus, who died and was buried, like literally rose from the dead to new life. I think I'd be foolish to assume that the idea that the resurrection sits comfortably with with most, if not all, of us here. Because it assaults the worldview that, that we are soaked in, that we imbibe. It assaults our modern sensibilities. It assaults our scientific understanding, doesn't it? And I get that. But such an outlook doesn't account for the creator God who spoke the world into existence, who said, let there be, and it was. It doesn't account for a God who sustains the universe by the power of his word. The universe isn't just spinning on its own according to some uh, natural set of laws that just happen to be operating somehow. 
It's God who sustains our world by the power of his word. One of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of Vern Poitras, he says this. He says, the regularities that scientists describe, you know, all the natural laws, gravity, all that, the regularities that scientists describe are the regularities of God's own commitments and his actions. But we're just describing God. Scientists describe the regularities in God's word governing the world. So they're doing us a huge favor. So-called natural law is really the law of God or word of God imperfectly and approximately described by human investigators. And this is what we are taught throughout the Bible, though it somehow just kind of zooms over our head. Psalm 145 I'm sorry, 147 verses 15 through 18 says this. It should pop up on the screen. Listen listen to what it says about things that we just think, well, if this happens, then this happens. And if this happens, it's just describing scientific processes. But notice how these things happen. Psalm 147 verses 15 through 18. This is God's word. It says, he sends out his command to the earth. Almighty creator God, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Well, what happens? He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the water flow. We describe all these things with scientific precision as we should, but what we are doing is simply describing the consistency of a faithful and holy God who sustains our world by the power of his word. There is not a rogue Adam in this world that is not doing what God has told it to do. So our outlook doesn't account for this. We say, resurrection, really? Such an outlook doesn't account for the disciples' willingness to die for what they knew to be false had Jesus not risen. Right? Why die for this? That's silly. Acts chapter 12 reports James dying at the hands of Herod for declaring the victory of of Jesus over sin and death. Acts 7 describes this horrible scene where Stephen is probably put up into the ground to his neck and he is repeatedly has rocks launched at his head till his last breath leaves him. Why? Because he was declaring the victory of God. Why do that for, for a silly fabrication? We can maybe imagine dying for a cause that we really believe in. Though, like, as I think about it, that's, that's tough to swallow. We can maybe imagine that. But why does history record the deaths of countless people dying horrific and completely avoidable deaths who would have known the re- resurrection to be just ridiculously false? Our outlook doesn't account for that. 
So, such a cynical outlook doesn't account for the change, transformed lives we see in Scripture. The Jews worshiped on Friday and Saturday. It was an unbreakable principle. It was the biggest deal. Like, it was the foundation of their faith. You stop, you rest. It was fundamental to their faith. Few things were bigger. Why then begin to worship on Sundays? Why then call it? The Lord's Day. The Christian practice of baptism, which we've just wonderfully witnessed, is based on the analogy of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Why do something like that for something that's nothing more than a foolish tale? And such an outlook where, where we just think the resurrection really, it doesn't account for the, just this, and I want to say this, like the, the messy, ugly details that are embedded in Mark 15 and Mark 16 that, let's be honest, would never be included if you were trying to sell people on a fraud. Women as witnesses to Jesus' burial and resurrection? Are you kidding me? In the ancient world, in, in Jewish circles, they couldn't even testify in court. It didn't matter if 10 women saw something. It didn't happen. A Jew that's a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, giving Jesus his burial of honor, not one of his disciples, not one of his followers. Are you kidding me? The women fleeing in fear as they do at the end of this passage after the disciples have already feared and vanished from the gospel according to Mark. If you're you're trying to sell oceanfront property in Arizona, you make it sound as good as possible. And Mark doesn't do that. You see, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is shocking news that confronts our worldview, but because it confronts and then shatters our worldview, because it doesn't account for all of these things, the resurrection of Jesus becomes soul-shaking news that reveals Jesus' power and glory to us. Look at verse 6 with me. There's a man, and he said to them, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He then tells these women to go and inform the disciples. Go, go tell Peter what's happened. And the women have a reaction that I, like, I don't expect. I don't think any of us expect. Look at verse 8. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They went out. They fled. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. This seems bizarre. 
But if we think about it, it's consistent. It's a consistent response people have when they see something of the true identity and therefore the true power and glory of Jesus. You recall the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9? Peter's up on the mountain with a couple of the other disciples, and, and Jesus is shown to them in all his glory. And Peter starts talking as Peter does. And, and what's the explanation for that? In verse 6 of Mark chapter 9, Mark tells us, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. They were afraid. They saw his power and his glory, and they were afraid. Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. They see him. It says the disciples were terrified. Demoniacs are healed in a city, and people see Jesus' power and glory manifest in these men. And what does it say? They sent him away because they were terrified. This is the response that people have to seeing, to glimpsing Jesus' true power and glory. And this is the response to the possibility of life beyond the grave. And, and yet, somehow, we've managed to make this a nice little, just like, it's just another story. Just matter of fact, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I guess that's what he did. But what these women were witnesses to was, was not ordinary or mundane. What, what they encountered in the tomb was a terrifying power breaking into the ordinary routine of life. What they witnessed that Sunday morning was the death of death. What they, what they witnessed was the vindication of all that Jesus ever did while he walked amongst them for those years. What they, what, what they witnessed that Sunday morning was God's stamp of approval on every word Jesus has spoken. His resurrection of the dead said, yes, that is all true. One pastor gives this exhortation. He said, whatever you do, However you think about these things, you are not to domesticate, right? to tame, to make it a little house pet. Do not domesticate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life breaking into the history of this world of death is the greatest thing that has ever, ever happened, and you hardly begin to understand what it is. It answers the great question of human existence in the most dramatic and decisive way possible. Death is so terrifying a thing, we can hardly bear to think about it. The conquest of death is something of such terrible power that we cannot really take it in. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as much a fact as is our soon coming death. And that is far and away the most important thing any human can know. It is the most important thing, friends, that you can know this morning. That death, the grave, did not, could not hold 
our Lord who suffered on our behalf. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a soul-shaking piece of news that demonstrates, that shows us, that clearly illustrates his power and his glory. He is worthy, as we sang. He is worthy. They fled, trembling, astonishment. They were afraid. That's how the gospel ends. Really puzzling ending, isn't it? Uh, perhaps maybe slightly unsatisfying. And, and now you can see why people want to say, hey, uh, maybe just a few editorial comments here on the end, verses 9 through 20. Like, we should just tie up this story in a bow. This could, this could end so much better. Well, at this point, I have an ugly confession to make. Actually, it's about my wife. Don't worry. Several times this week, I said, babe, are you sure I can share this with the people? She said yes, though I don't know why. My wife reads the end of a book before she's finished. I know. Is she even human? Right? Sometimes, this has happened, sometimes in the middle of a TV show series we're watching, we're like, we're following along in Hulu, it's great, like, we're halfway through the series. She will, like, I, I turn over, I go to bed, she's online looking up the spoiler to how the series ends. Does that? Right, and ask her, why? Why are you doing? Don't do that. Why are you doing that? And, and she always says, I can't handle not knowing what happens. <laughs> really? Are you even human? Perfect in every other way. Such, <laughs> such a gift to me. Um, and yet. If my wife does that with the Gospel of Mark, like she gets to chapter 8 and, and, and Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah of God, and, and she's like, oh, I'll find out what happens. And then she gets to the end and they're, they're, there's trembling and there's astonishment and, and fear has seized them. She's still left wondering what's happened. She's probably still just as, as unsatisfied, like uh, it, she feels left not knowing, and we're all left wondering what happens. And I actually think this is brilliant. I actually think it fits really well with what Mark has been writing to the people of God all along, what he's been teaching. Remember, Mark is not only a book about the good news, the gospel of the suffering servant, the son of God who came as a ransom. But it is also a roadmap for discipleship, for what it means to follow him faithfully. All along, Mark has been showing people, here's what it means to follow Jesus. Here are the implications. And, and here, in this conclusion, Mark leaves everything open-ended um, 
not like a, a nice little bow on the end, but one of those fill-in-the-blank, choose-your-own-ending kind of books, Invitation to Discipleship. The angel has commanded them in verse 7, look at it. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And we're left wondering, well, will the women go? Will they, will they proclaim Jesus' victory? And, and while we know how the story turns out, because we have the rest of the New Testament, we're never told in Mark. So the, the question kind of turns itself around and becomes, will we? Will we go and proclaim Jesus' victory? Will I join in following Jesus, declaring his death as a ransom, his victory over sin and death in his resurrection? Will we announce his resurrection so that sinners like Peter are restored? Will we announce his victory so that people who, who place their hope in this risen and conquering king can know that all their sins and all their wrongdoing and all the darkness and disgusting things from their past are, past are forgiven? Will we announce his resurrection so that those who trust in his life, death, and resurrection will be raised up on the last day, just as he was raised up, just as Daniel 12 teaches us? Will we announce his resurrection so that those who trust in Jesus can have certainty and assurance that he is making all things new? He is, as one uh, d description of the Bible put it, making all the sad things come untrue. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Will we proclaim that victory? That's the, the question we're left with in this really unsettling ending. So be sure of this. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is good news, the best news that calls us to proclaim his victory. It's not inconsequential news. It's not ho-hum news. It is earth-shattering, soul-shaking, good news. If you recall, Mark opens his book by writing these words. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's going to tell us about it. And then Mark closes with an invitation to hear that news and to share that news with all those around us. God has conquered. We must proclaim the soul-shaking, earth-shattering good news of Jesus' victory over sin and over death. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?
Gracious Father, I ask now that you would bear with all of us in our weaknesses, in our doubts, and in our fears. And I pray that in doing so, you would confront us with your immense, unthinkable power and glory. Let us see it. Let us, let us experience it. Let us feel it. May we stand and sit in reverence and awe and holy fear of you, the holy, powerful God. And I pray right now that, that by your Holy Spirit, you would grant some in this room to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. I pray that you would give them a new heart even now. May they look to your Son, Jesus, the crucified but risen Son of God, as their only refuge, as their only hope, is their only comfort in life and death. Father, and I pray for your people in this room. I pray that you would use now your people today and this week and in the months and years to follow to declare your victory, your triumph over sin and over death. May we carry with us constantly the news that you, just as you raised your son from the dead, you will raise up those who place their faith, their hope, their trust in him and have been united to him by your spirit. May the message of an empty tomb fill our speech. May it, be, may it just be our anthem God, make your people at Missio Church your faithful servants who delight in faithfully witnessing to the victory of Jesus. God, our world is in despair, it's hopeless. It has no promise of eternal, unending, lasting, unfading uh, life apart from the empty tomb. It has no hope apart from you. Father, use us in many ways in this community to carry that good news to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.